Welcome back to the Hemingway List, everybody, for book two, chapter seven of War and Peace. We are flying through this book very slowly. <laughs> We're flying through slowly. I'm going to go, I am going to fly through this episode, though, because I am feeling very under the weather. Uh, I don't know what's going on. I don't really feel sick, per se. I just feel extremely tired and extremely run down. Like, I feel like I'm going to wake up sick. That's how I feel. Um, I've had a few very bad nights sleep just because of like sleep apnea. I'm dealing with a bit of sleep apnea. Not that you need to know all my problems, but um, I'm working with a sleep specialist to try to figure out just what the hell's going on with my sleep. Uh, and the last few nights have been particularly bad, so I'm, I'm grinding down here. I feel very, very uh, run down. I'm aching. That's what I'm doing, aching all over. <clears throat> anyway. With that in mind, I am going to be very quick about this podcast because I do want to get as much sleep as I possibly can tonight. I reckon I'll be asleep before 8pm tonight, which is unheard of for me. Uh, Discussion prompts. As a reader, do you believe that Tolstoy put a a hint of menace and foreboding in the soldiers' reactions to the handsome women that passed by? For the chapter as a whole, what is your gut reaction? Disgust at the jovial nature of the soldiers? Amusement? weariness and fear on how these guys are going to be exposed to the realities of war soon the foot soldiers don't seem to like the hussars and vice versa that's the third discussion prompt it's funny to see that intra army dislike like the foot soldiers and the hussars are on the same side but they seem to just hate each other at the moment um yeah so the the cat calling i suppose you'd call it on the um, the women as they pass by and, and the kind of sentiment towards the women in general. Um, I wouldn't say I'm disgusted by it. I am kind of amused because I'm removed enough to be amused by them being douchebags, you know. Um, not laughing with them, but laughing, laughing at them for being, you know, such typical dickhead kind of, I don't know, they're almost like, I don't know what I, how I would refer to them. But um, it's like the ultimate, what do they call it? What did Trump call it? A locker room talk. It's like that, you know, they're soldiers. They're hundreds. They're, you know, a thousand miles from home in a foreign country about to march to their death. And it's just brothers and brothers and brothers, you know, in terms of like, it's just a man's uh, place. There were no women in the military at that time, I don't think at all. Um, And so it's very much just compounded masculinity and I guess it's, I guess it's them venting some of that in, you know, whatever little window they see the possibility to do so. And so I feel like a mix of like amusement at how <laughs> cliche they're being and also a feeling of like you hope someone stands in to protect, you know, to be the voice of reason. Um, Brett Peterson said, I felt really sorry for the German refugees. Having a younger daughter myself, I would hate to have a bunch of foreign soldiers gawking at my wife as I was being forced to leave my home. That would just be humiliating. Absolutely. Yeah, you feel worst of all for the father um, because of, you know, how how gut-wrenching that would be. I mean, I guess it would be for all of them, but I feel like... Um, the the helplessness that he would feel being so outnumbered and and foreign in that situation. 
Uh, I suppose I feel bad for them all, but yeah. Uh, my gut reaction, says Brett Peterson, is that this chapter captures the chaos of war rather well. The soldiers are terrified at trying to escape, not realising that they would do it in orderly. It would, If they were to do it orderly, it would be much faster. Uh, this is actually the main thing I wanted to comment on. In the podcast, Anders said it's kind of weird that soldiers on the same side would hurl insults at each other, but being a soldier myself, I've seen this firsthand. Hey, that's cool. I didn't know you were a soldier yourself. Very awesome. Uh, I'm currently working on a joint task force with members of the Army and the Air Force National Guard, and just Friday I was with a bunch of cannon crewmen, and we were joking about how aviation soldiers are all weirdos. Of course, if we were in battle, we'd work together as a team, but in between, we joke with each other. I think that's what's going on at the end of the chapter. I think you're right. I think when it comes down to um, real warfare, they'll band together pretty quickly. I think this is just an interim kind of rivalry. Warren he said... Two chapters in a row now where there's been some ominous remarks about women from the soldiers. Tolstoy seems to be foreshadowing some untold behavior for sure. The sense I keep getting is that many people react to horrific situations like war by acting almost entertained by it. People often laugh when they are uncomfortable, so I think it's plausible the prevailing jovial attitudes from those we've seen so far could be something similar. I think the soldier mentioning mentioning the cannon and how scared he was, but acting impressed by the whole thing is a good example. It might be something similar to shock. I thought something disastrous was going to happen when they all got stuck on the bridge. It seemed something like out of the movie Dunkirk. Yeah, I can picture it like that too. That's a pretty good visual. The Qureshi said, Can someone define Hussar and Cossack? Good question. I love, you know what, out of all the things I see, the discussion I see on this subreddit, these are the kinds of questions that I love the most. Just really basic, like, things like that. There was one yesterday, I can't remember what it was, but it was literally like, can someone tell me who... (coughs) Oh, no, the sneezing has begun. That's not a good sign. Probably just hay fever. Don't get... (laughs) Don't get all... What's the word? Um, Hypochondriac. All right. Um, yeah, yesterday someone asked who Nesvitsky was, just to remind them, and that's that's awesome. I love that kind of just using the sub as a resource. <coughs> oh, no. Andre Bolkonsky, 69, said, The Hussars were a type of cavalry used by most European armies that specialised in scouting and hit-and-run tactics, so that means they were riding horses, they were on horseback, usually at the front of an army, though by the 19th century they were mostly just like other cavalry units. Still, the culture of the courageous fop always at the front stuck, and the Hussars were famous for their flamboyant uniforms and highly ex- high expectations of courage. So they were, they were on horseback. Is that what cavalry means? I'm pretty sure that's what cavalry means. Yes, soldiers who fought on horseback are cavalry. Um, and they seem to be a bit more prestigious on account of having that reputation as being kind of heroic. You know, not that all the soldiers weren't heroic, but they went to the most dangerous places. And so they got the flashy uniforms and they were all clean and shiny. Uh, and hence the um, the foot soldiers, you know, they've just slopped through the mud across the bridge and they're all dirty and wet. And, uh, and then here come the hussars on their horseback and they're all shiny and clean. And, and to them, that's a, you know, that's, that's a worthwhile thing to to um, attack the Cossacks were originally independent communes in Imperial Russia and the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth that sustained themselves by a mixing of living off the land 
producing their own food, etc., and uh, noble thievery. By the 19th century, though, the most Cossack communes were scattered by the Russian government and many were folded into the army. Wow, okay, I never knew that. And I've read this book before. That's very interesting. Um, André Bocancy, 69, also continues on to give a whole uh, listing of the different um, command, uh, the chain of command. Glad to help, says André Bocancy. The chain of command for officers in the Russian army in the Napoleonic Wars would be like this. Up the top, commander-in-chief, the supreme commander of the whole army. A general is usually commander of a sub-army. Lieutenant general, usually commander of a sub-army or a division. And a major general is usually the commander of a division. So the armies are broken down into smaller and smaller and smaller parts, parts within parts within parts. Um, A division can vary in size from a few thousand to a few tens of thousands of troops. A colonel is a commander of a regiment, which is about 1,000 to 3,000 men. So that's how big a regiment is. See, I thought a regiment was a couple of dozen people. I don't know why I had that all wrong. Uh, A lieutenant colonel is the commander of a battalion, second in command of a regiment. Uh, And the battalion is commanded by a major. A battalion consists of 400 to 800 men. The captain is the commander of a company, which is 100 men at full strength but it's usually less than that. Then there's the lieutenant um, who assists and is second in command to the captain. Ensign slash cornet is the second in command to the lieutenant. Some would have the honour of carrying the flags of the regiment. Uh, A junker is an officer in training, a cavalry title, okay. And below that were the NCOs and privates. In addition, the upper ranks usually had a sort of personal assistant who would deliver orders and perform tasks to the officer, who, which they couldn't perform personally. When an assistant to a colonel, they would be called adjutants, and when to some sort of general or commander-in-chief, it's an aide-de-camp. That is very, very helpful. Thank you for that. Andre Bolkonsky, 69. That's great. Um, I'll probably refer back to that over the course of the book. All right, now I'm going to read chapter 8 before I fall asleep on you. Chapter 8 goes like this. The last of the infantry hurried over the bridge, squeezing up together as they approached to funnel through. At the last baggage, at last, the baggage wagons had all crossed. The crowd loosened, and the last battalion came onto the bridge. Only Denisov's squadron of hussars were left on the far side of the bridge now, facing the enemy, who could be seen from the hill on the opposite bank, but wasn't yet visible from the bridge because the horizon from the bridge over the river was filled by a hill about half a mile away. At the foot of the hill lay wasteland, over which a couple of groups of our Cossack scouts were moving. Suddenly, on the road at the top of the high ground, artillery and troops in blue uniform appeared. These were the French. A group of Cossack scouts came back down the hill at a trot. All the officers and men of Denisov's squadron tried to keep their minds and their eyes and their conversations off of what was happening upon that hill. The enemy troops that were appearing along the skyline, the weather had cleared again since noon and the sun was out and shining over the Danube and the dark hills around it. It was calm and now and then the bugle calls and shouts of the enemy could be heard from the hill. There was no one in between the squadron and the enemy except a couple of scattered skirmishes. An empty stretch of probably 700 yards was all that separated them. The enemy stopped firing, and that stern, looming, inaccessible and intangible line which separates two hostile armies was all the more clearly apparent. 
That line is like the line between the living and the dead, and one step beyond it lies uncertainty, suffering and death. And what's there? Who's there? There, beyond that field, that tree, that roof lit up by the sun? No one knows, though we'd like to know. You have morbid curiosity to cross that line, and you know that sooner or later you'll have to cross it and find out for yourself what's there, just as you will inevitably learn what's on the other side of death, but you are strong and healthy and happy, and look how excited and youthful and healthy the men around you are. That's what anyone who comes inside of the enemy thinks, or at least feels, and that feeling gives a certain sparkle, a strange glamour to everything you see taking place around you at such times. Up where the enemy was on the high ground, some smoke rose from a cannon, and a ball whistled over the heads of the Hussar squadron. The officers who were standing together quickly rode to their places. The hussars began carefully aligning their horses. Uh, the whole squadron went silent, looking at the enemy in front. Looking at the enemy in front and at their squadron commander, awaiting the word of command. A second cannonball flew past, then a third. The shots were clearly meant for the hussars, but were off target, whistling over the horsemen's heads and falling somewhere beyond them. The hussars did not look around, but at the crack of each shot, as at the word of command, the whole squadron, with its rows of similarly yet different faces, held its breath and clenched its butt cheeks, rising then sinking in the stirrups. The soldiers glanced sideways at each other, trying to sneak a look at how their comrades were reacting. Every face, from Denisov's to that of the bugle player, showed one common reaction. The, oh fuck, how should I react to this face? The quartermaster frowned and gave a threatening look to the soldiers. Cadet Miranov visibly shat himself every time a ball flew past. Rostov on the left flank, atop his horse, Rook, a great-looking horse despite its bung leg, had the air of an overly enthusiastic teacher's pet who'd been called up before the class and was confident he was about to get a smiley face sticker for his work. He was glancing at everyone with a clear, bright expression, as if asking them to notice how cool, calm and collected he was under fire. But, despite himself, on his face too, there was a hint now and then of, oh fuck, how should I react to thisness? Who's that curtsying out there? Cadet Milanov? That's not white. Look at me, cried Denisov, who was turning his horse on the spot before his squadron I am unable to keep it still. The dark, hairy, snub-nosed face of Denisov, in fact his whole stocky little body, right down to the stumpy and hairy fingers which were wrapped around the hilt of his sabre, looked just as it always did, especially towards evening, when he was two bottles deep, only maybe slightly redder. With his shaggy head thrown back like a drinking bird, pressing his spurs deep into the sides of his good horse, Bedouin, and sitting as though about to fall off backwards in the saddle, he galloped to the other flank of the squadron and called out in a hoarse voice for them to look to their pistols. He rode up to Kirsten. The staff captain on his chunky, steady mare came at a walk to meet him. His face with its long moustache was serious as usual, though his eyes were particularly bright. "'What do you reckon then?' said he to Denisov. "'It won't come to a fight. You'll see. We'll retire.' I think retire, I'm going to swap there for fall back. You'll see, we'll fall back. Oh, the devil only knows what they're doing, muttered Denisov. Hey, Wostov, he cried, noticing the cadet's excitement. You finally got it. And he smiled approvingly, clearly pleased with the cadet. Rostov was completely stoked. Just then the commander appeared on the bridge. 
Denisov galloped up to him. Your Excellency, let us attack them. We can drive them off. Attack, you reckon, said the Colonel in a bored voice, screwing up his face as if a mozzie was bugging him. And why have you stopped here? Can't you see the skirmishes are retreating? Lead the squadron back. The squadron crossed the bridge and moved out of range of the cannons without having lost a single man. The second squadron that had been in the front line followed them across and the last Cossacks quitted the farther side of the river. The two Pavlograd squadrons, having crossed the bridge, retired up the hill, one after the other. Their colonel, Karl Bogdanich Schubert, came up to Denisov's squadron and rode at a foot pace not far from Rostov, paying him no attention whatsoever, despite this being their first encounter since their disagreement concerning Talyanin. Rostov, feeling that he was at the front and in the power of a, of a man toward whom he now admitted that he had been to blame, did not lift his eyes from the colonel's athletic back, his nape covered with light hair and his red neck. Rostov suspected now that Bogdanich was only pretending not to notice him, as if trying to test the cadet's courage, so he puffed up his chest and looked around himself merrily, trying hard not to seem awkward. Then Bogdanich came closer. As if riding right by him to show his courage, Rostov imagined now Bogdanich sending his whole squadron on a desperate attack just to punish him, and then imagined laying there after the attack wounded and Bogdanich coming up to him as he lay there in pieces and magnanimously extending the, ha the hand of reconciliation. The high-shouldered figure of Zerkov, which the Pavlograds recognized easily since he used to be one of them, rode up to the colonel. Since he'd been dismissed from headquarters, Zerkov had not remained in the regiment, saying he was not stupid enough to be a slave at the front lines when he could get more rewards for doing bugger all on the staff, and had succeeded in attaching himself as an orderly officer to Prince Bagration. He now came to his former chief with an order from the commander of the rear guard. Colonel, he said, talking to Rostov's enemy with an air of gloomy importance and glancing round at his comrades, there's been an order to stop and fire the bridge. An order? Who to? asked the colonel pissily. I'm not sure exactly, replied the cornet in a serious tone, but the prince told me to go and tell the colonel that the hussars must return quickly and burn the bridge. An officer, sorry, another officer followed soon after Zerkov riding up to the colonel of hussars and relaying the same order. After him came little Fatso Nezvitsky galloping up on a Cossack horse. <clears throat> excuse me, that could hardly carry him. Well, what do you reckon, Colonel? He shouted as he approached. I told you to burn the bridge, and now someone's gone and made a mess of it. They're all beside themselves over there, and I can't make heads nor tails of it. The Colonel deliberately stopped the regiment and turned to face Nezvitsky. No, no, hold up. You told me to chuck down the flammable material, said he, but you never said to burn it. Yeah, but mate, said Nezvitsky as he drew up, taking off his cap and slicking back his sweaty hair with his fat little hand. Didn't I say to burn the bridge once you'd laid the flammable shit? I'm not your mate, Mr. Staff Officer, and no, you did not tell me to burn the bridge. I know my job, and I'm in the habit of obeying orders to the T. You said the bridge would be burned, but burned by who? How, in God's name, should I know? Whom? Typical. Always the bloody way, said Nezvitsky with a wave of the hand. How'd you get here? he said, turning to Zerkov. Same as you, but you're drenched, mate. 
Let me ring you out. You were saying, Mr. Staff Officer, continued the Colonel in an offended tone. Colonel, interrupted the officer of the suite, we really need to do this now or the enemy will bring up the grape shot guns. The Colonel gave a silent look to the officer of the suite, then at the stout staff officer, then at Zerkov, then he frowned. Fine, I'll burn the bridge, he said in a weary tone, as if to announce that despite all the bullshit he'd had to endure, he would still do the right thing. And with a way too hard kick to his horse, and as if it were to blame for all this, the colonel moved forward and ordered Denisov's squadron, the one that Rostov happened to be in, to return to the bridge. Yep, I fucking knew it, thought Rostov. He wants to test me. His heart contracted and the blood rushed to his face. Fine, let him. He'll see if I'm a coward. Again, all the bright faces of the squadron turned serious, just as they had when they were under fire. Rostov watched his enemy, the colonel, closely, trying to find in his face confirmation of his theory, but the colonel didn't once glance Rostov's way. Instead, he looked, as he always did, when at the front, severe. Then came the word of command, Look sharp, look sharp, several voices repeated around him, the hussars not knowing quite what to do just not knowing quite what to do, quickly dismounted, their sabres catching in the bridles and their spurs jingling. The men were crossing themselves. Rostov wasn't looking at the colonel now. He had no time for that. He was too busy shitting himself. Suddenly his heart stood still at the thought of falling behind the other hussars. His hand shook as he gave his horse into the orderly's charge, and he felt his heart resume in heavy thuds. Denisov rode past him, leaning back and shouting something. Rostov saw nothing but the hussars running all around him, their spurs catching and their sabres clattering. Stretchers, shouted someone behind him. The word stretchers didn't compute for Rostov. He ran on, trying only to be ahead of the pack, but just at the bridge, not look, no, not looking at the ground. He stepped into sticky, deep mud, stumbled and fell on his hands. The others moved past him. At both sides, Captain, he heard the colonel call, who, having ridden ahead, had pulled up his horse near the bridge with a triumphant, cheerful face. Rostov, wiping his muddy hands on his breeches, looked at his enemy and was about to keep running, thinking that the further he went to the front, the better. But Bogdanich, without looking at or recognising Rostov, shouted to him, Who's that running across the bridge to the right? Come back, cadet, he cried angrily. He turned to Denisov, who, to show his bravery, had ridden onto the planks of the bridge, and said, Why take unnecessary risks, Captain? You should dismount. Every bullet has its billet, answered Vaska Denisov, turning in his saddle. Meanwhile, Nezvitsky, Zerkov, and the officer of the suite were standing together out of range of the shots, watching now the small group of their men in yellow shakos, dark green jackets braided with cord and blue riding breeches, who now at the enemy who now at the enemy approaching from the far side who what? Who were now at the enemy approaching from the far side what? The blue uniforms Oh, wait, okay. And. I'll read that again. Meanwhile, Nezvitsky, Zerkov, and the officers of the suite were standing together out of range of the shots, watching now the small group of their men in yellow shakos, dark green jackets, braided with cord and blue riding breeches, and now at the enemy approaching from the far side, the blue uniforms, and the groups of horses were easily recognisable as artillery. Are they going to burn the damn bridge or not? 
Who'll get there first? Will the Will they burn the thing before the French get in with their grape shot range and wipe them out? This was what each of the troops asked himself involuntarily while they watched from the high ground above the bridge with a sinking heart, watching the bridge and the hussars in the bright evening light and the blue tunics coming towards them from the other side with their bayonets and guns. Shit, the hussars are about to cop it, said Nesvitsky. They are within grape shot range now. He shouldn't have taken so many down there, said the officer of the suite. That's true, answered Nesvitsky. Two capable fellows, fellows could have done the trick. Ah, Your Excellency, put in Zerkov, and he was watching the hussars closely, but still with that naiveness about him that made it hard to tell if he was being sarcastic or sincere. Ah, Your Excellency, you're looking at it all wrong. Just two men could do it, you reckon? But then, who would give us the Vladimir Medal and Ribbon? See, now if they do get peppered, the squadron will be recommended for honours and get a ribbon. Old Bogdanich knows how these things work. Ah, look there, said the officer of the suite. That's grape shot. He pointed to the French guns, the limbers of which were being detached and hurriedly removed. On the French side, amid the cannons, a cloud of smoke appeared, then a second and a third, and at the moment, the first crack was heard, a fourth was seen. Then two more reports, one after another, crack, crack, and another. Oh, far groaned Nesvitsky, as if in agony, seizing the officer of the suite by the arm. Look, one man dropped. Dropped. Two, I think. If I were the Tsar, I would never go to war, said Nesvitsky, turning away. By the way, that's my phone going beep beep. Just ignore that, sorry. The French hastily reloaded their guns. Now the French infantry in their blue uniforms were running as at the bridge. Smoke puffed here and there at irregular, irregular intervals, and grape shot crackled and spat onto the bridge. But this time Nesvitsky couldn't see what was happening there because of the thick cloud of smoke that was rising there. The hussars had succeeded in setting fire to the bridge, and the French batteries were now firing on them. And now they weren't doing it to stir them, but because their guns were aimed right at the enemies to fire at. The French had time to fire three rounds of grape shot before the hussars got back to their horses. Two were off target and the grape shot went too high, but the last round fell smack bang amongst a group of hussars, knocking three of them over. Rostov, still obsessing over his pissing contest with Bogdanich, had paused on the bridge, not knowing what to do. There was no one to mow down. He'd always imagined that during battles he'd just be mowing down the enemy like mad. Nor could he help with burning the bridge because he hadn't brought any straw with him like the other soldiers. He stood there looking useless, when suddenly he heard a rattle on the bridge, as if someone had spilt a bag of pistachios, and the hussar right next to him fell against the rails with a groan. Rostov ran to him with the others. Again someone shouted, Stretchers! Four men took hold of the hussar and started lifting him. Ah, for Christ's sake, piss off, leave me alone, cried the wounded man, but still he was lifted and laid on the stretcher. Nicholas Rostov turned away and, as if searching for something, stared into the distance at the waters of the Danube River, at the sky, and at the sun. Jeez, it looked beautiful, that sky. So blue, so calm, so deep. How vivid was that setting sun. Bloody spectacular. And the Danube in the distance there. How it glittered. And even more spectacular still were the faraway blue mountains beyond the river. The nunnery, the mysterious gorges and the pine forests with their summits veiled in mist. There, just there, was a place of peace and happiness. I'd never ask for another thing, ever, if I could just be over there, thought Rostov. Just me, alone, over there, in that sunshine. I'd be the happiest man alive. But here, 
Here are groans, suffering, fear, and this confusion. Now they're shouting again, and now they're all running back somewhere, and I'll run with them, and it, death, is right here too, surrounding me. Any moment now I'll never see the sun again, or that water, or that gorge. Just then the sun moved behind the clouds and more stretches came into view, coming Rostov's way, and the fear of death and of the stretches and love of the sun and of life merged into a sickening feeling of restlessness. O Lord God, thou who art in heaven, save, forgive, and protect me, Rostov whispered. The hussars ran back to the men that were holding their horses. Their voices were louder and calmer. The stretchers disappeared from sight. How'd you go, mate? You've smelt some powder, shouted Vaska Denisov just above his ear. It's over, but I am a coward, a massive coward, thought Rostov, and sighing deeply he took his horse, Rook, which stood resting one foot, from the orderly and began to mount. Was that grape shot? he asked Denisov. Yep, it sure as hell was, cried Denisov. You worked like absolute legends, and that's nasty work. Attacking is the easy part, hacking away at the dogs. But this sort of thing is absolute hell, with them shooting at you like sitting ducks. And Denisov rode up to a group that had stopped near Rostov, consisting of the colonel, Nezvitsky, Zerkov, and the officer from the suite. Well, it seems like no one has noticed, thought Rostov, and he was right. No one had taken any notice, for everyone knew how it felt to be a cadet under fire for the first time. Here's something for you to report, said Zerkov. This will for sure get me promoted to sub-lieutenancy. Let the prince know that I have fired the bridge, said the colonel, quite chuffed with himself. And if he asks about the losses? A trifle, said the colonel in his bass voice. Two hussars wounded and one taken out, he added. And when he said taken out, it was with a careful emphasis and a barely restrained smile. All right, there we go. Another chapter for you. What a great chapter. Holy crap. That's one of the better ones so far, isn't it? That's top That's top three so far. Whew, that moment. That was one of the classic moments of Tolstoy's where in the, in the height of the battle, in the height of the action, a character will stop and notice nature. And it's so effective. It gave me shivers. Oh, beautiful stuff. All right, guys, have your say about that over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I will see you tomorrow.